0: Hi, and welcome to the Northridge Vineyard Evening Community Podcast. We're a church community in Sydney, Australia, who are passionate about pursuing God together and seeing the world changed by His love. We hope this message challenges and inspires you. For more talks and other resources, please visit our website www.northridge.org.au. Well, hello if I haven't met you yet. My name is Chris. Uh, my wife Jen and I we get to pastor the evening community here at Northridge, which is so much fun. Uh, it's wonderful to see a whole bunch of new faces here tonight as well. So if this is your first time, I want to give you a special, extra special welcome. If you're like new or checking us out or visiting, I just I think it's important for you to know that this community dinner thing, like th- this, is for you too. You don't have like you don't have to bring something to be able to come and and take part. So just be our guest tonight and. And come hang out, it's very good to have you. Um, we're kicking off a new series tonight, which is super fun. Yeah, no, it's all right. I, I think Laura is much better at punning than I am. Um, but yeah, anyway, we're, we're starting a new series tonight, which I'm really excited about. Um, the series is on the Gospel of John, but before we dive in and actually do the like, do the series intro, I just want to give you all a bit of a Heads up about what's coming teaching wise, actually for the rest of the year, because we've actually planned until like the end of January for preaching, which is. I thought that was like a massive round of applause worthy thing, but. <laughs> but it's not the same because I had to ask for it. Um, so we are. I shouldn't have asked for Well, then I wouldn't have got one. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's move swiftly on from that because um, I'm embarrassing myself. Um, so for the next nine weeks, we are doing a deep dive into the Gospel of John, which is going to be heaps of fun. And in particular, we're looking at this question of who is Jesus? Who is this man that we sing about tonight? Um, and that's going to be tons of fun. Uh, then we have two one-offs, so we're doing a vision update to let us, uh, to kind of say how we're we going, um, chasing our vision of building Acts 2 community here in the evening at Northridge. Um, then we have Troy from Raw Impact, who's going to come and, and guest speak, which is super fun. Uh, then we've got, we've got another big media series, and rather than a book series, we're actually going to look at this idea of um, humanity being made in the image of God, which in Latin is Imago Day, and it makes a much cooler series title if you say it in Latin. Um, <laughs> We're rounding out November with a three-week, uh, light-hearted um, chat about the topic of suffering, uh, which is going to be stacks of fun. I wrote an essay for my, um, my master's course I'm doing on the topic of suffering, and it was so full-on, but it was awesome. Um, and then we're rounding out the year. Our Advent series this year, we're actually going to look at God as Trinity, and we're going to look at how um, Jesus coming to earth was actually a unified act of God as Trinity, which is really exciting. So that's kind of the outlook um, but the reason I wanted to do this is because um, at the beginning of the year, in fact, towards the end of last year, Jen and I had this word for our community for 2019. Um, and it, well, it's actually two words, but it's a, a you know what I mean. Um, but we had this word, and the words are spiritual maturity. Now, that doesn't sound like very exciting and awe inspiring, and, and, you know, uh, but um, basically what it's, what it's saying is that as a community of people, we believe that God wants us to grow. Um, because we believe that his kingdom needs to grow. Um, But we don't just want to grow in size, uh, although we do want to grow in size also. We really believe that this year God is calling us to grow in depth. He wants us to go deeper. He wants us to grow in maturity as a community of people. And so every single series we're doing this year is about that. Um, And so this series on the Gospel of John... um, Oh, okay, I suddenly somehow put on the, uh, the words, that's exciting... Oh nope! Still words. We have like a we have we have like an extra special um, tech night tonight. So here we go. Rachel's just going to drive for me um, for this bit, and then when I switch to my other PowerPoint, then I'll take over. But um, so we're we're asking this. We're digging into the Gospel of John, and we're asking this question: Who is Jesus? Because um, if you're a Christian. Um, then this man is absolutely central to everything we believe. Who Jesus is defines how we live. It defines who we are. It's, it's everything to us. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're trying to figure out Christianity, the whole, the whole deal, it all rests on this question of who is Jesus. Now, if you want to know who Jesus is, a really good place to start is in the Gospel of John. Um, and that's why we're, we're looking through that book. Um, Now, whenever we do a book series, something I really encourage us to do is ask a few key questions. So the first one is, who actually wrote this book, and what does that tell us about what it says? Um, Another one that's really important is, why was this book written? So the author of John, uh, incidentally, is a man named John. Uh, You could have picked that one. Um, But the, the exact John that we're talking about is one of the original disciples of Jesus, uh, and it's quite funny, you'll notice as we read through this book that he generally refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is just a little fun fact for you. Uh, so it's written by that John. He's the same John we suspect, we, we highly suspect, it's the same John that wrote um, 1, 2, and 3 John, the letters that we find towards the end of the Bible. And it's also the same guy that wrote that crazy book at the end called Revelation. So the guy that wrote Revelation and the guy that wrote this book are the same guy. Um, So it gives you a little bit of context for what we're getting ourselves into. Um, But probably more pertinently for us today is the reason that John wrote this book. And it's quite unique um, among the Gospels. John gives us a lot of insight into Jesus that we don't get from what we call the synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the thing that John's Gospel is really, really concerned about is telling us who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus' identity Um, It's a mixture of narratives, so we do learn a little bit about, um, well, quite a lot about uh, Jesus' story, but we also get a lot of discourse as well, so a lot of Jesus' teaching is in there. And um, central to this gospel are these seven statements that Jesus makes known as the I am sayings. So if you want to know who Jesus is, then let's ask, well, who does Jesus say that Jesus is? And so we've got these seven I am. Traditionally, we have seven I am statements. They're these metaphors like he says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the true vine. I'm the light of the world, things like that. And we're also getting two bonus I am's, which are two other statements where Jesus uses the words I am, but they're not considered uh, part of the traditional seven. Um, But the one that we are looking at tonight is, uh, is one of those two bonus ones, and it comes from John 4. So if you've got a Bible handy, um, open it up, switch it on. Uh, if not, just listen along um, to me as I read it. And we're starting from John 4, verse 1, and we're going through to verse 26. Uh, and it may, it may be a familiar story. It might not be. Uh, Following along as best you can, and we're going to unpack it together. So I'll read from the NIV. Um, Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. That's John the Baptist, not John the author of this book. Um, Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, "'Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty "'and have to keep coming back here to draw water.' "'He told her, "'Go call your husband and come back.' "'I have no husband,' she replied. "'Jesus said, "'You're right when you say you have no husband. "'The fact is you've had five husbands "'and the man you now have is not your husband. "'What you have just said is quite true.' "'Sir,' the woman said, "'I can see that you're a prophet.' Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. The salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks, God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, "I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us." Then Jesus declared, "I, the one speaking to you, am He." Or in the NLT, it says, "I am the Messiah." So, what just happened in this passage? I don't know about you, but uh, there's there's actually quite a lot of biblical backstory. That's going on here. There's, um, so, so we have, we have Jesus. Um, he, this is really, really early on in his ministry. Like This is really early days. He's only just called his disciples. Um, and, and he's in Judea. He's um, baptizing lots of people. And he, he's getting pretty popular. Um, but it's not his time yet. This is like year one of his ministry out of three. So it's not his time yet. So he decides to go somewhere a little bit more rural, Uh, where he's a bit more anonymous for the time being, so to Galilee. Now, normally, if you were a Jew and you wanted to walk from Judea to Galilee, you'd go around the long way because you didn't want to walk through Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. Um, But it's it's interesting here in verse 4, it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. It's interesting, isn't isn't it? The only thing we know that happens in Samaria is this encounter. But So, so Jesus is, is walking through Samaria. He comes to Sychar, which is the capital of Samaria, and it's just near a, um, a mountain, the name of which I, I, I always forget how to pronounce. I think it's Mount Gerizim, um, which is the Samaritan place of worship. And he, he, the disciples go into the town to buy some food, um, and Jesus is exhausted from the journey. He sits down by this well, and this, this woman comes out from the town uh, to chat with him. Well, so she doesn't come to chat with him. She comes out from the town and Jesus engages her in a conversation. Uh, And she's first up, she's really surprised that Jesus is talking to her. Um, And then they they talk about water, which is kind of fair enough that they're at a well. Um, Jesus says some cryptic stuff about living water. Um, Then there's all this interaction about her husbands and uh, all the different husbands she's had, uh, which doesn't seem to follow from the water bit. And then... Uh, Jesus starts talking about mountains and, and temples. Like the, the woman asks this question about where to worship, which doesn't seem to follow on from the husband's bit. Uh, and then in the end, Jesus comes out and says, I'm the Messiah. H- how does that happen? What, what is this interaction actually all about? Because it, it doesn't totally make sense. Uh, and especially the fact that at the end, this is the first time, according to John's gospel, that Jesus actually reveals who he is. And it's not to his disciples, it's not to the Jewish authorities, it's not to his friends, it's to this random woman he bumps into in Samaria. What, what actually is going on in this passage? Um, to actually understand the significance of what's happened, we're going to need to go a long way back in the Bible. In fact, we're going to need to go back all the way to the beginning. And we don't just need to understand the story of creation that we get at the start of the Bible. We actually need to understand the narrative that happens throughout the whole Old Testament. And so we're going to read it all now. No, we're not going to read it all now. That would be ridiculous. Um, what, we're going to, what we are going to do, though, is potentially almost as ridiculous. I'm actually going to tell the whole story of the Old Testament in 10 minutes. Are we ready? Yep. I've got to take my jumper off for this. It's going to get serious. Rachel, yes, here we go. So here it is. So this timeline you're seeing on the screen here, and if you're on the podcast, I'm going to put a link up um, to this little presentation. What we're looking at is a timeline of the most significant periods of time in the Old Testament. So we're going to go through each of them now. So it starts out in creation. This is where I really hope this thing works. Ready? It does. Amazing. So what happens at the beginning? So the first thing is God creates the world. Now, whether you ascribe to a literal reading of this uh, Genesis 1-3 or figurative or somewhere in the middle, doesn't really matter for the purposes of this discussion. The key thing is that according to the Bible, God creates the world. He creates it good. In fact, he creates it very good. And at the end, the pinnacle of this creation, he creates these curious little creatures uh, called humans. He makes them in his own image. He makes them as a reflection of himself. And he gives them the authority to rule and have dominion over the creation that he's just made. Pretty significant role. Um, now, strangely enough, there happens to be this snake in the, uh, in the garden. Um, the snake is representative of the devil. Uh, and the snake comes in and whispers into their ears and he says, hey, guys, uh, guess what? You know that tree that God told you not to eat from? If you eat from that, then you'll be like God. And you know, the, the, the sh- real shame of that lie is that they were already like God. They were made in his image. It's a lie from the father of lies. But anyway, so uh, the snake says that they eat from the tree. Things go horribly, horribly pear-shaped. Um, that wasn't meant to be a pun, but It wasn't a soup pun, so it's fresh. Um, So things go very quickly downhill. Um, And then there's this event called the fall, where humanity falls from its uh, created state um, to what we have now. But in God's description of the fall, there's this interesting little verse that you'd be totally forgiven for reading past. Um, So God is addressing the serpent, so the devil. And he says, "'I will cause hostility between you and the woman, "'and between your offspring and her offspring.'" He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I genuinely, when I first read this, I actually thought this was talking about why humans and snakes don't get along. <laughs> and when you, when you read it, you'd be like, it's a pretty you know, significant way to read it. Um, but the key thing here is it's not talking about all humans. It's talking about a specific human. That last little part there, another way you can translate it is, he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. So, what God is saying to the devil is, there is going to be an offspring. There is going to be a man that is born, um, that like a human man is going to be born, and you're going to strike his heel, but he will crush your head. So, in the in the moments after the fall, God has already provided the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. God has already given us a clue that He has a plan to save humankind from what's just happened. Isn't that incredible? Moving swiftly on, so God kind of he sort of disappears off the scene for quite a long time after this, um, and it's not until there's there's like a flood, there's a tower, there's some other stuff, but we're just going to skip right over that, and we're going to go to about 2,200 years before Jesus comes on the scene. There's this period of time that's known as the time of the patriarchs. Um, so God sort of just appears one day, the God of the universe who created all things just sort of rocks up and. Um, says g'day to this guy called Abraham. His name was Abram at the time, but God gives him a new name, but um, details, we'll, we'll push swiftly on. God meets with Abraham, and f- for, for a guy that, you know, they, they've just met, God gives Abraham a pretty significant promise, and there's two key parts to that promise. First of all, he says, Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed to, through him. God says to him that, Abraham, your descendants will outnumber the stars. I'm going to make you into an incredible nation. So that's part one. But part two is it's not just about you. Through you, all nations will be blessed. So God here is establishing the nation of Israel, who we're going to be talking about for the rest of this segment. Um, And he also provides another messianic prophecy. He says that through Abraham's line, a man is going to be born who is going to sort all of this out. Now, um, Abraham has kids, Um, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, who we read about, Jacob, Jacob's well, so that's the context for that. Um, But they're basically, um, at the end of the book of Genesis, they're basically a really big family, but they end up as slaves in Egypt, and things aren't looking so great for this fantastic nation that God's promised. And that's where We come to the Exodus, and yes, we have the book Exodus, but this this Exodus story actually goes for the second through to the fifth books of the Bible. Um, So what happens? So the Israelites, they're in captivity as slaves in Egypt, but they grow in this time from being a large family to actually being a, a people group to being a nation. And when they've grown to this size, God raises up this guy called Moses, and he leads them out of Egypt through various means. You can listen to our series on Exodus if you want to know how that happens. Um, God raises up Moses. He leads them out through the Red Sea. They wander around the desert for 40 years. They get the law, and at the end of the Exodus story, um, which actually is in the book of Deuteronomy, um, we wind up with the Israelites on the bank of the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the land that God promised to Abraham. But in that book of Deuteronomy, as Um, Moses is giving his kind of like farewell speech to his people before he dies. He gives this really interesting prophecy that we often uh, read past or don't realize is there. Um, It's not just this verse. It goes on a little bit. But the key verse here is Moses says to the Israelites, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you for your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. So Moses is saying there's going to be another prophet like me. Don't freak out. There's going to be another one, and you have to listen to what he says. And a little bit further down in this passage, he says he will explain everything to you. So when the woman at the well says to Jesus, you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. She was probably thinking about this verse. But here we have at the end of the Exodus story another significant messianic promise. It's another promise from God to the world that the Messiah is coming who's going to set all things right. Now, we, we sort of finish off on the bank of the Jordan River, and so the next period we have is known as the conquest and the time of the judges. So this starts out with Israel uh, conquers. Uh, they, they go into the promised land. They conquer everything. God fights with them, and after that, everything is rosy. Jokes. Um, what happens almost immediately, when, they, when the, even as they're conquesting this land that God promised to them, is they start to develop this unhelpful pattern where something will be slightly not right, the Israelites will freak out, they'll start worshipping other gods, uh, everything absolutely falls apart in terms of their national interest, and then God will send some sort of uh, saviour. In, in this period, it's the judges. Um, in, in future, it's the, the King David. But God will intervene in some way and set things straight. So it's this pattern that not only continues through the time of the judges, but actually all the way up to the end of the Old Testament. Um, And towards the end of this time um, of the judges, we find that the Israelites have this really specific request for God. They say, all the other nations around us, they have kings, and they're all really successful in battle. So God, why won't you give us a king? We want to have a king. Now, the irony of that is they already had a king, and it was God. And they already knew that there was another king coming, like a human king who was going to sort everything out. But still, they were like, no, no, no. We know there's a king coming, but we want one now. Have you ever done that? Maybe not with kings, but like with other things. It's, it's just the human condition, isn't it? And that's the end of the time of the judges. So God eventually says, yep, I'm going to grant you that request. I'm going to give you a human king, and let's see how that goes for you. Um, so enter the time of the monarchy. Now, this is quite a long and really significant period, so this gets six sub subslides. Um, the first king we get, this guy Saul, he, he does probably better than, uh, you know, reading back. He does probably better than you'd expect, but he's not... He's not fantastic. And so God raises up a new king, this guy called David. And we read about him all through the Bible. This guy is so significant. And he, this, this King David, he, he rises up. He's a man after God's heart. He conquers all of the promised land that, um, that God had promised to them. And there's peace. There's prosperity Um, He begins to build this temple, and this is really significant um, when we get back to the woman at the well shortly, but he begins to build this temple, which is the center of worship of God in the world, in in the city of Jerusalem. Um, And there's this sense of, is this the man we've been waiting for? Um, As you may or may not know, David, like all, all humans, is quite human. Um, but one thing that's really also interesting to note is during this time of prosperity, there are songs of praise just coming left, right, and center. There are these psalms that keep being written. And within these psalms, we get prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about this coming messianic king. It's really fantastic. It's, uh, it's not purple on my one. But um, that's all right. However... After David, things don't go super well. His son Solomon does reasonably well for a while, but then things kind of go downhill at the end for various reasons that I won't go into. Um, but, the, the, but the kings that follow, they just they walk away from God. Um, there's a couple of good ones in there, but for the most part, it doesn't go super well for the Israelites. They keep worshipping other gods. And during this time, instead of songs of praise coming out, um, God raises up these prophets who come and warn the Israelites of basically impending doom. Uh, He basically says, if this behavior carries on, if you don't follow my law, if you don't have relationship with me, then you're going to be exiles. I'm going to kick you out of the promised land, um, and that's what's going to happen. But even even these prophets who are warning them of exile still continue to make prophecies about this coming Messiah. And some of the most incredible messianic prophecies are in the book of Isaiah. Um, But Basically, at the end of the... Uh, this is like a simplified version of what happens, but at the end of this, um, this monarchy, the kingdom of Israel is divided. Uh, the north kingdom gets absolutely dominated in battle and only a small number of them survive. The southern kingdom um, lasts for a little bit longer, but eventually the Babylonians come in, they conquer them, and they take the Israelites away. And that's the start of this next period, which is the exile. And this lasts for about uh, 80-ish years. So the, so what happens in the exile, they're conquered by the Babylonians. The upper and the middle classes are taken away, but, and this is important, again, for women at the well story, but the lower classes remain. The, uh, the Babylonians don't want to take the poorest of the poor because they'll become a liability instead of actually helping their nation to prosper. So these lower classes, these sort of rejects, they stay behind um, for survival. They start to intermarry with other nations around them. They sort of create a bit of a hybrid religion between um, Judaism and uh, and and the neighboring religions. And the term that we have for this these, this, this remnant who stayed behind and kind of um, forsook their forsake. How do you? What's the word? Forsook, forsaken, whatever. Well, um yeah we'll we'll sort that problem out later. But the, the, the people who remained behind, they came to be known as the Samaritans. Ah, oh, okay. The plot emerges. Um, after a period of time, the Persian Empire comes in and conquers Babylon, and through uh, various means, the, the Persian king basically says to the Israelites, okay, you can begin to go home. And so what happens is um, Israel comes home, They start to, um, so there's the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and there's also a bloke who doesn't get his own book, but he's called Zerubbabel. He's pretty cool. Um, They rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, but the whole time they're rebuilding, they're getting opposed by these people who stuck around, these Samaritans, and so the plot thickens. And that's sort of where the Old Testament leaves off, but we're not done yet. I'm doing... Way better than I thought for time, which is great. Um, There's three significant things that happen in between the two Testaments because Old Testament finishes about 430 BC. New Testament picks up at zero. So what happens in the middle? There's a few significant things. The first significant thing is basically the Israelites thought they were going to come back from uh, exile and everything was going to be fantastic. But about 100 years after they get back, Alexander the Great comes in and he conquers their whole region. And so all of a sudden they're under Greek rule. So it's not all rosy like they thought it was going to be. Then um, very, very quickly, Alexander the Great dies and his kingdom is basically divided up between all these different superpowers. So once again, they find themselves under Egyptian rule. Then not long after that, the Syrians come along and they kick out the Egyptians and then they're under Syrian rule. And the Israelites are like, hang on, I thought when we came back from exile, everything was going to be fantastic. What is going on? Where is this Messiah that was promised all the way through the scriptures? Because we need him right now. Then this guy uh, called Judah Maccabeus, he comes along. He's an Israelite. Um, He's an absolute gun revolutionary. He leads a revolution. He actually succeeds in overthrowing the Syrians. But it turns out that he's not actually as good at ruling as he was at rebelling. So, they, so the Jews were all like, hey, we've got this, this is fantastic, we've got, we've got the Messiah, like, he's here. And then when he starts to actually try and rule these this, this people as a nation, it doesn't go so well, and they find themselves with a bit of an autocratic leader. And they're like, okay, well, God, clearly this is not what you meant when you promised this Messiah. And it's in that kind of sorry state that the Romans come along and they kick the Maccabeans out, and that's where we sort of end up um, when Jesus comes onto the scene. Something else that's important that happens over the course of this period, which is worth mentioning, um, which will be really important for some of the subsequent talks we're going to get um, to, is the rise of this mob called the Pharisees. So when they came back from exile, there were a whole bunch of teachers of the law who basically said, okay, let's read through the prophecies it seems that the problem is that we haven't upheld God's law. So what we're going to do is we're going to uphold God's law so well, in fact, we're actually going to create a whole set of new rules so that it's impossible for us to get God's law wrong. And then maybe God will send this Messiah and everything will be peachy, just like the way we want it to be. And that group came to be the Pharisees. So when we read about the Pharisees in the, in the Gospels, they actually were a people who started out with extremely good intentions. But Well, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, The final thing I want to point out is about 100 years before Jesus, um, in the time that the um, Samaritans were left behind and the Jews were out in exile, they built their own temple on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. I wrote it on the slide so I could pronounce it right this time. Um, So they, they built this temple, and about 100 years before Jesus came along, the Jews actually went and destroyed that temple because they believed it was a false place of worship. So in the story, when the woman says, are we supposed to worship on the mountain or in the temple? It kind of makes sense now, doesn't it? Like, oh, okay. There was this kind of feud over where worship was supposed to happen. And that is pretty much the whole Old Testament. So, I hope we're all applauding Jesus. Um, Yes, with um, help from Prezi, it's very good. So then about 100 years after this temple gets sacked, this guy, Jesus, comes along. He's going for a walk one day. He's going from, uh, from uh, Judea out to Galilee. He takes the short route because for some reason he had to go that way, or so the Scripture tells us. And um, the disciples are um, you know, going to, to buy some lunch, and Jesus is taking some rest by the well, and this woman walks up. And Jesus engages her in a conversation. And maybe it makes a little bit more sense now. Because as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans, you can imagine the Samaritans probably also hated the Jews. might also help you to know that there were some teachers of the law, because at that point, Jesus was effectively a teacher. That was the the role that he was fulfilling in Jewish society. There were some um, teachers of the law who, if they saw a woman in public, they would close their eyes because they thought it was unclean to even look at a woman. And so here's Jesus, a teacher of the law, in Samaria, engaging in conversation with a woman who was Samaritan, who was outcast by even her own people. So Jesus is engaging in conversation with someone who is not just at the bottom of the pile, they're at the bottom of the bottom of the pile, socially speaking anyway. And he begins to have this conversation with her. And they talk a bit about um, living water, and Jesus um, makes an incredible promise um, to have this living water and that she'll never thirst again. And then, then there's this interaction. Um, Jesus gets a word of knowledge and, and gives it to her, and she goes, okay, well, clearly you're a prophet. So if you're a prophet, tell me, where are we supposed to worship? And uh, Jesus gives this incredible, incredible answer. He says, you know what? There's a time that's coming, and in fact, it's here now, because I'm here now, where it doesn't matter where you worship, what matters is who you worship and how you worship. And then she says, you know, obviously she's a little bit confused, and so she says, okay, well, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain everything. She's thinking back to that, that passage in Deuteronomy. When the Messiah comes, everything will make sense, and Jesus at this point, now this this woman, she would be very. She's obviously familiar with the scriptures. She's obviously familiar with the story of her people and the Israelites, and she knows all of these messianic prophecies that have been happening right since the fall, through the Exodus, um, Judges, through the time of the monarchy, both good and bad, um, even during the time of the exile. All of these messianic prophecies, she would have known them. And she says, one day that guy is going to come and everything is going to be okay. And Jesus says, that guy that the scriptures have been prophesying about, that's me. Do we start to understand how incredibly, incredibly, incredibly profound this interaction is? And how scandalous that this is the person that Jesus reveals that to. You know, when the disciples come back, if you keep reading, when the disciples come back, they're outraged. They can't believe They're literally shocked into silence that Jesus is even even looking at her. And this woman, so powerful, is the testimony of what Jesus has just told her, that when she goes back into this town that she's effectively outcast from, half the city believes. What an incredible, incredible statement. I am the Messiah. So what does that tell us now? I just want to give us three really simple things. The first, So who is this Jesus, and what does this mean for us today? The first thing is that Jesus, as we've seen, is in fact the culmination of all of human history. All Scripture points to him. All praise points back to him. And this Jesus, he is the center of the human story. It's kind of like an hourglass, like everything up to that point points to Jesus, and everything else points back. Secondly, this Jesus, he is the reconciler of all nations and people. Did you notice, as I told that story, how the focus gradually shifts from that original promise where God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation and you will bless all nations. Do you notice how it becomes less and less and less about all nations and more and more and more about Israel? And so when Jesus reveals the news that he is the Messiah to this Samaritan woman, he is, it's this incredible prophetic act of breaking down these national boundaries. He's like, this isn't about the story of Israel anymore. I'm from that nation, but this, it's not about the nation anymore. This is about all nations, and I'm starting with you. The least likely... Jesus is the saviour, not just of the Jews, um, but I think sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that in our day that Jesus is the saviour of the church. Um, you know, the church isn't actually Jesus' target market. The world is Jesus' target market. We, we think sometimes that God looks out at the world in all its sinfulness and he just, he just can't deal with it. He can't be out there. He can't be in the presence of sin. And that's just so false. Because just, just think about this interaction. That's God in the presence of sin. You know, God loves the world. We're not his target market. We're his staff. We're, we're his team. Like, like, we're partnering with Jesus in this plan of bringing reconciliation to all things and all people. Um, there's this incredible, incredible uh, scripture that we get in Galatians Uh, where Paul says there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. Suddenly, when you have all that context, that true children of Abraham thing makes sense, doesn't it? You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And finally, not just is Jesus the center point of all human history, not just, not just the reconciler um, of all nations, um, but Jesus is the restorer of all things. You see, it goes all the way back, not just, to, not just to Abraham's promise, but to the garden, to what was broken, where humanity's created purpose was broken. Jesus came to restore that and create a new humanity and to, to inaugurate a new creation. And when we come here and we sing praise to Jesus, that's who we're singing praise to. That's the beautiful name that we sang about tonight. What an incredible king. What an incredible Messiah. And what a profound statement that Jesus makes at the beginning of his ministry. Now, we are going to continue on to talk about who Jesus is. We're going to talk about um, these other I Am statements. We're going to talk about, the, uh, we're going to talk about his death and his resurrection. Uh, but that's where we're going to leave it for tonight. So would we stand? Um, and it would be great... Before we eat, to just encounter, just for a moment, this living Jesus. So I'm going to pray for a bit, and then we're going to wait for a bit, and then we're going to see what the Lord would like to do. And I just want to encourage you where, because we've got the community dinner tonight, we're going to kind of like do this bit of ministry time all together, and then we're going to sort of wrap up all together and then go out to dinner. So just encourage you to stay in here for the time being. Well, Lord, you are um, quite something. Um, as we consider the, the history um, of the human race, uh, of the Bible as we consider this, this incredible story that we get to be a part of, Lord, we just can't help but give you praise when we realize that it's all about you. And so, um, Lord, we just stop for a moment and we just, we just take a second to remember um, the significance of, of who you are and what you did, Lord. Good. I just want to ask that as we consider this incredible story Lord, would you just draw us into that story because we're a part of that now. That, um, that, that same Jesus that we've just read about, his spirit lives in us. And so, Lord, I just want to ask that you would awaken your spirit in us once more, Lord. Awaken your spirit. Lord, call us into life. Call us to follow after you, Lord.